Welcome back to Joystick and Mouse, video game news and reviews for all you filthy casuals out there. My name is Alex, I go by Cross in the Gaming Community, and this is episode 108, and we're doing something a little bit different. You'll notice we're not live on Twitch today. Instead, we're having an interview. I interviewed Dominic Myers, a Game Studies scholar. I discovered Dominic on TikTok under his moniker Game Studies 101 and found his perspectives on video games extremely enlightening, and I knew I needed to have him on this show. So he covers everything from the state of the industry to philosophical perspectives on the topic of play. Uh, you need to check out his TikTok first and foremost. But we start out the conversation by talking about what Game Studies is. Game Studies is inherently multidisciplinary, meaning it draws from multi um, a multitude of fields of study within academia and has only recently formed into its own kind of section. We talk about how video games may be a somewhat new industry, but the idea of play has been around for way longer. Play is simply a cultural element and that thus everything that video games has ever been founded on originates from our ability to tell stories and our ability to just play in general. We talk about the current state of the industry and the gambles that large companies take by making video games. With any video game, movie, television show, whatever, it is a pretty big gamble and a pretty big risk to develop this huge artistic product that you want to send to multitudes of millions of people. And if it's not good and it flops, that could make or break an entire company. We talk about how we build relationships with characters we engage with in video games through parasocial interaction. It has profound effects on users. Parasocial phenomenon is one of the most persuasive tools that was found within television and is even more persuasive within video games. And finally, we talk about the indie gaming space and how to support smaller studios. Play their games with a new open mindset. Yeah. With the turn of the millennia, and especially with at-home console, uh, with at-home consoles becoming mainstream, AAA developers have really taken control over what it means to play a game. And games are so much bigger than that definition. And indie developers are the ones exploring that. Here's my conversation with Dominic Myers, also known as Game Studies 101 on TikTok. Dominic Myers, welcome to Joystick and Mouse. How are you today? I am doing grand. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat. We're doing something a little different here in Joystick and Mouse. Typically, we're talking about the news in the industry and stuff. Um, but, you know, we're starting to explore conversations with experts, if you will, in the industry. And you have a quite a cool background. I, I discovered you through TikTok and you have some really good insight on the video game industry and uh, through through some of your studies of of video games through through college. So without me taking up too much time here, do me a favor. And if you were to be talking to this group of people who may have never heard of you, how would you introduce yourself to them? Yeah, I'd say, hello, friends. My name is Dominic, and I'm a game studies scholar. Um, I just finished up my undergrad. I'm heading towards my master's and my doctorate, um, and I do a lot of fun research stuff on game studies. If you don't know, game studies is this entire section of academia that tries to understand why and how we do this awesome thing called play. It's so cool. And the, the fact that, first of all, people are getting their degrees in this area it makes me wish I went to college uh, the time that you're going to right now because this is right in my wheelhouse and you have a an undergraduate degree in communication and and that's something that I'd actually like to learn a little bit more about like for people who want to get into game studies like what does game studies 
mean and how would they actually get into that? Do you mind sharing? Yeah, absolutely. So game studies is inherently multidisciplinary, meaning it draws from multi. Um, a multitude of fields of study within academia and has only recently formed into its own kind of section. So it's pretty difficult to find an undergraduate program in game studies because most people will explore other programs before then going into game studies through either a master's or a PhD or may just stay in separate fields and do game studies research. Um, communication, psychology are probably the two biggest fields that game studies draws from, but really any type of social science, even sociology or religion, even philosophy can be utilized in a background of understanding why we play and how game studies affects each and every one of us, even if we don't consider ourselves to be quote unquote gamers. And we're going to talk about one of the things that that you dive a lot into, especially in your TikToks, is this idea of parasocial interaction. And that's that's such a profound thing. And, and we'll definitely get to that. Um, but before we do, and I think a very common answer to this is because like video games are awesome. But like why video game studies? Like what drew you into wanting to learn about this? Yeah, so the first time that I ever got the opportunity to do game studies work was I was sitting in my intro to communication class my freshman year. I wasn't even a comm major at this point. I was think I was English education and German. And we were doing our final project, which was just a simple, you know, pick a comm theory and apply it to literally anything. And I asked uh, my professor if I could do it on a video game. And so I looked at this theory called narrative paradigm theory, which basically argues that narratives are the most persuasive tool that we as humans have because we're naturally storytelling creatures and we connect with stories more than any other type of rhetoric. And I applied it to Bioshock, looking at how the audio diaries in the game actually utilize narratives to rhetorically persuade users to save little sisters instead of killing them. Um, and that was my first moment diving into this wonderful world of game studies. And very next day, I changed my major and have done pretty much every research project that I've ever undertaken with something within the game studies world. That's fascinating. And, and by the way, uh, Bioshock is one of my favorite game franchises of all time for a lot of the reasons that you just talked about this, uh, the, the choices you make, not just that, but the setting and the narrative uh, of that is all kind of encompassing in this utopian society that kind of goes wrong. And I love that. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, narrative driven games, how they've changed over the course of the past several years. And uh, we will certainly jump into that, but let's talk about the industry as a whole, because I think that this is where I would love to get some insight from you. On this show, we talk about a lot of like the, the newest news and such when it comes to like anything involving uh, perhaps console, the, the quote unquote console wars to the newest games coming out, but also some of the philosophical questions. And a lot of this comes down to our love of single player narrative driven experiences and how a lot of that has changed. So, you know, from your perspective as both somebody that has studied this stuff as well as consumed it yourself, let's talk about how the current state of gaming and the industry itself has evolved and maybe how it's different from perhaps 15, 20 years ago. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I think that the biggest thing to keep in mind um, and the biggest paradigm to keep at the forefront of your mind when trying to tackle a question like this is that we often think gaming is only, you know, a 50-year-old industry. And while video games may be relatively new, it's the foundational principles that video games utilize have been around since humans. Um, I'm thinking about um, 
uh, Homo Ludens with Huizinga, who first was one of the first game scholars to ever emerge, and he argued that play is simply a cultural element, and that thus everything that video games has ever been founded on um, originates from our ability to tell stories and our ability to just play in general. We don't think of tag as having any influence on the gaming industry right now, but it absolutely does. But when looking specifically at the video game market, so much of it is based on kind of past principles of more passive mediums, specifically television and movies, that, you know, it's all run under a capitalist system, and thus most video games are made with the intention to make money as the primary objective of them. And so when looking at the video game market like right now compared to 15 and 10 years ago, it's the constant issue that every art kind of service has fallen into, whether mm. it's like traditional painting art, movies, television, or even video games now. It is a question of where do we draw the line between wanting to make art for the sake of making art and where do we have to kind of sacrifice some of that sometimes in order to be able to make a profit? Wow. Yeah. And that's kind of nailing it, right? Because a lot of what you see these days, and this is a, a fair critique from the gaming community when you look at a lot of um, big corporations, EA comes to mind because they're easy to beat up uh, a lot of the time. Like, you know, people blame EA for a lot of the ways that perhaps um, Bioware games have not produced as consistent of a product as they were, you know, the, in the days of perhaps let's say Knights of the Old Republic or, you know, games like that. And they're saying that, oh, it's coming down to a bottom line sort of deal to a lot of the investors and stuff. So, and, and this is actually a good tee up for the next question, because when you look at the relationship between publisher and developer and consumer, I feel like it's gotten more complex over the past several years. Would you agree? And if, if so, what is the trend that perhaps you're seeing in that relationship, that bottom line uh, from a dollar perspective and how that's affecting us as consumers? The thing video games are doing is actually pretty new and innovative with this idea of constantly trying to make money because with any video game, movie, television show, whatever, it is a pretty big gamble and a pretty big risk to develop this huge artistic product that you want to send to multitudes of millions of people. And if it's not good and it flops, that could make or break an entire company. And so a lot of games have been basing this relationship between consumer, um, developer, and publisher about trying to ease that um, risk. You know, like um, the Fallout franchise is one that I particularly like to hate on, you know, not so much EA, although they do deserve a little bit of shame um, <laughs> just because I grew up with Fallout. Uh, Fallout 76 got a lot of flack for their Fallout first campaign, right. which was basically like, a, oh, pay us a monthly fee and you can get access to all of this cool stuff. When it's like they're trying to take the risk out of constantly making games. If you can get a continual monthly income in, from a business perspective, especially a business that is constantly taking these massive multi-million dollar risks by developing games, it makes complete business sense. But by doing that, it completely jeopardizes and puts a ton of strain on the consumer relationship with the developer and with the publisher as well. It strengthens the publisher-developer relationship most of the time, unless you have developers that deeply care about their work they're doing on. Also, Fallout 76 got in trouble for this. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, this 
trying to take the risk out of making this massive product is jeopardizing that relationship. And AAA game developers kind of need to realize that it's, yeah, it's a risk and it's going to be here, but there's not really much we can do right now to stop it. Movies, television, all other forms of media, even books, have tried this as well. I have tried some way of mitigating that risk of spending so much on this giant product, and it sometimes it just might fail. But all of them have been unsuccessful, and games are just giving it their trial run. And hopefully, soon they will learn the same lessons that all the other types of media have learned as well. Yeah, because I, I don't know about you as a consumer, and feel free to chime in here, because I, I, I have that DLC fatigue, right? Like, I remember playing... Final Fantasy 15 recently, well, recently, you know, a few years ago, or whenever it first came out, and at towards the end of the game, there's a huge gap of content where, like, the main character ate, without going too much into it, because I, I certainly don't want to spoil it for anybody who's playing the game, but, like, there's this huge gap of content where all of a sudden you're way older and you're in a prison cell, and there's all this stuff that happened to you in between the time that you had just kind of did that jump in time. And it came out later that like, Oh, this is now a DLC you can buy to kind of fill in that narrative gap. Do you have, do you personally like have gripes with that or any good experiences that, that you could commiserate with me on in regards to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have thoughts and feelings. Oh, um, good, Cause I do so too. <laughs> to bring up fallout again, which, is what I've done the most research on out of any like individual franchise. Um, all you have to do is look at Point Lookout, which was a DLC for Fallout 3, and look at Far Harbor, which was a DLC for Fallout 4. Mm -hmm. They are the same DLC. <laughs> and it's ridiculous because Point Lookout was actually in a really amazing DLC and tried to take, you know, what Fallout was doing and almost turn it into a horror game, which they tried new innovative game mechanics and all these interesting things. And then Point Lookout said, we can do this better and just yeah. ended up doing the exact same thing. Nothing was really new about it at all. And it was uh, for me personally, as a consumer, it was kind of aggravating because I was like, why are we continuing to utilize the same narratives? Um, because even to take it out, even another circle forward, that was the fourth time that Bethesda in fallout has used the, Oh no, you're a parent and there is a missing child. You better <laughs> go save them. What's like, we know what's going to happen. You've already told us this story. Um, and so when developers do these, or when AAA developers, I should pause it, do these things with DLCs, it's just annoying as a consumer because games are some of the most innovative forms of gameplay and storytelling that we have in the world right now. And also the most accessible, excluding VR a little bit. And so we should be pushing the boundaries and trying new things. But when we're constantly rehashing things or putting them behind these paywalls with DLCs, it's like a book publisher trying to give out individual chapters. It's, it would wow, that's never a, work like that. That is a very good way of putting it. It's like giving a book with or, or even like giving you an entire book. And then it's like, okay, I just finished chapter four. I'm now ch skipping to chapter seven in some cases too. And, and, uh, and that's super frustrating <laughs> as a consumer. And, and actually you brought up something else that's really interesting just to, to, to touch base on that. 
this sense of reliving the same story archetype, it feels like it's getting a little old in, in some of those cases, like the fallout parental relationship. You got to find your kid or your, your parent or whatever. Like that's pretty, that's a trope that's used a lot. How do you feel like the consumers of video games are aware of that and are sick of it? Because I also look at, you know, we talk about call of duty, for instance, like that's just kind of a, reskin of a similar experience <laughs> over and over again and, and sometimes people like that but what's your overall observation on just the rehash of perhaps story or or concept or, or anything like that in the current state of the industry i think that the major reason as to why AAA developers are getting away with this rehashing is why certain players play so narratively the fallout franchise is rehashing the same stuff over and over again at least bethesda's versions of fallout and with games of call of duty we know what that player base wants they're first off stigmatized and incredibly overrepresented when it comes to gamers but we know why call of duty players play call of duty it is not for the narratological element or the narrative side it's for the ludological which if you don't know ludological is just the actual game mechanics how games play as functions of play itself and so some people play games as a form of narrative, some people play games as a form of a ludological environment, and some people play it both at different perspectives and different levels of both at any given moment in time. And so some of these AAA developers can get away with it, Call of Duty in particular, because they know their player base isn't playing it for the narrative. They can keep rehashing it so long as they keep the gameplay interesting and just leave you new toys to find along the way. Yeah. And there's tons of other stuff that I could get into with intrinsic versus extrinsic motivations of players. Um, but ultimately, it's it's going to end up becoming a downside for these AAA developers because, you know, Call of Duty and the typical, you know, FPS 14-year-old white boy that we all think of when we think of a gamer, only 27% of gamers primarily play FPSs. There's more gamers who play other types of games, and frankly, those other genres of games tend to be just overall better, both from a game scholarship standpoint, a game developer standpoint, and a game consumer standpoint. So we're hopefully getting to the point where these AAA developers will realize that more and more people actually do want new content and don't just want to focus on rehashing and replaying the same stuff over and over again. But it's hard to tell when those AAA businesses will start to catch up with the reality of the gaming market right now. Yeah, very true. And you actually, that this idea of like this extrinsic and intrinsic i believe are the terms that you use kind of motivation behind why a gamer games i think is a big piece that we don't necessarily think about on this show a lot because the, like i like i mentioned between me and diddy and j dimes we're big on the narrative piece we like I, I enjoy hopping in call of duty with with some of my friends and and going out and you know uh poning noobs as the kids are saying and i you know having fun doing that but also I think more of our love in general is around that narrative-driven story. Talk to me about this idea of motivation around gaming. I'd be very interested in learning more about that. Yeah, so the primary uh, the primary game that I use to explain internal versus extrinsic motiva motivations is actually through Minecraft. Um, so 
All games and play experiences, by extension, have to motivate the player to play the game in some way. And these motivations can either be external or internal. External motivations are motivations that the game itself give you, or something that the game space facilitates. So for Call of Duty, for example, this is, oh my gosh, I beat this level and now the game is giving me a new level, a new gun, or, oh, I get to go play this game with my friends. Friends, you know, the game is facilitating a space for you to play with them. The game is giving you the extrinsic motivation to play it. Um, for Minecraft, this is survival mode. It's what it's entirely based on, especially for people that are speedrunners and stuff. Um, you know, if you're playing survival, the quote-unquote true survival way, where you're only focused on beating the actual game through the level design that Minecraft has kind of set up, um, your only goal is to get through every spot, get to the end, kill the dragon, and you're done. On the other side of the spectrum is internal motivations. These are the motivations made solely in the mind of the player. For Minecraft, creative mode. And often, players aren't solely on one side or the other. It's a blend of both in most cases. So, you know, that's why in survival mode during Minecraft, you still have people who want to build nice-looking houses and want to build luxurious gardens and these giant resource management systems. It extrinsically helps them along their path, and the game rewards them for doing it, but it's also intrinsically motivated because it feels good to have something look aesthetically nice and have something that you built that you're proud of. Um, it's a balance of both, and often when games rely only on one side and completely neglect the other, it ends up causing a lot of issues. Like Animal Crossing, for example, um, New Horizons really struggles with this in the late game. Once you've accomplished all of the um, stepping stones that the game sets up for you, um, once you get, um, oh gosh, what's his name? DJ Slider, something like yeah. that? I can't remember. I haven't played it in a while. Yeah. Um, the game stops giving you external motivations besides your, like, star rating. Um, and so it's completely internal. And that's why so many people, especially during the pandemic when this came out, once they got to that stage, they got bored and stopped playing because it was entirely intrinsic. And you can only entertain yourself with self-made goals for so long. That's a really good point. And that's exactly how I felt. I got DJ Slider and I, or whatever his name is, and I stopped I stopped playing that. And to this day, I don't know about you, but like, I feel super guilty that I haven't gone back to the island and like, what are they doing? They're waiting for me to clean up all the weeds or stuff like that. I don't know about you. I feel so guilty. Like, do you still have you gone back and played much Animal Crossing or no? I went and looked at it. And then when I had like half of my villagers be like, oh, my God. You're still alive. I was like, <laughs> yep, time to go back into the metaphorical coffin and not come back. <laughs> this game is done. I always, I always, you know, you get enough grief from your grandparents because you never call. And then when I go into this game where I'm trying to escape all that, they're giving me a hard time. I just don't, you know, I don't know we got time for that. I think that's really funny. And for you, like, where do you fall in that category that from the external or the internal uh, motivation? What do you feel really connected to? I mean, it all it all depends on the game, obviously. Um, there's a methodology that I'm particularly fond of in research called generic rhetorical criticism, which basically looks at everything from a standpoint of genre um, and that like every generic or every genre and situation brings with it certain expectations um, for rhetoric and in the case of games play to occur. Um, 
And so, like, genre also completely influences this and what where we may lie on the spectrum. But overall, I would say I probably lean 60-40, the majority being intrinsic. But, um, you know, it's hard to say. I don't, it's rare, very rare to see a gamer that is, like, over, like, that is 80-20. Yeah, like, I, I, I kind of us are pretty close to the middle. <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel the same way as you. You know, I think when you were talking about Minecraft, for instance, are you playing any Valheim on PC? I am not. No. <laughs> okay. It is. It's a lot of fun. I... Um, and you you basically are Viking, and you you build your own little Viking settlement, and you can play with friends. And another game like that, you know, like any of the survival sort of games right like raft is another one that diddy and i have played diddy and i played valheim and raft and uh uh there there have been a couple of others but those are the sorts of games that i find like really uh satisfying because perhaps it's it's a couple things one i'm able to build my own thing and that's really fun and and neat but then on the other hand you kind of like just doing those like mindless tasks of like collect the thing and work towards building that that thing that's going to help you get a little bit further in the story Something about that is kind of cathartic and and enjoyable. Is there anything from a psychological perspective that perhaps you've learned about what motivates people on on that sense of like the escapism behind some of that? I'm not aware of anything founded in research to answer this question, but I can take my best stab at it given my knowledge base of I would say it is this idea of inserting the human experience into a game world. Um, We take, you know, Animal Crossing was really popular for this in the pandemic and was what kind of led it to be such a popular game, at least before, you know, it becomes entirely internally motivated, is that we brought the human experience of being able to do basic things. And, you know, like as we are all, you know, stuck in our homes, neglecting the chores and people that we have to FaceTime, we can create this goal within a um, within a gamify or within a game world of just like cleaning up the weeds and when we get that done we feel good because that's part of the human experience that's how we as humans make goals because the internal and external motivations yeah it's a game studies term but it's so easily applied to the real world as well does the world reward you for accomplishing a goal the world set or do you reward yourself for setting a goal that you set um, and so the same psychology that's used within the real world within goal setting, it's exactly the same within game worlds. It's just usually a little bit easier to do in the game world. Um, yeah. So it feels not I wouldn't I don't know if it, I would say it's more satisfying, but it's more easily obtainable satisfaction. Yeah. And which kind of gives you that same dopamine hit that perhaps you would get from accomplishing whatever it is that you do in the real world, which is still that you know, enjoyable feeling. So that's, uh, that's pretty profound. That's pretty neat. You know, I want to think about story for a second because, you know, we talked about it before. Story is a big part of why the three of us on the show talk about video games and such. Um, with the way AAA developers have been, you know, we talked about it before, just not necessarily meeting the mark in some narrative decisions for some of these games or the way that they tell their stories, uh, the, the choices there, um, you know, at, at what point do you see in, in the future, perhaps indie games and, and those indie developers addressing this problem? And, and I, cause I thought back to one of your, your TikToks about this, you addressed this kind of broadly, but I thought it'd be a fun conversation. So we'll, we'll start there. Like, what are your thoughts around the way the narrative experiences is, is 
evolving in AAA versus indie games? Yeah, so there's actually a ton of research out on this right now. Um, and, you know, narratives within games has been one of the most profound areas of research um, since game studies really became its own defined field with the turn of the millennia. Um, and AAA games um, really have just focused on traditional narratives. Um, and it was, you know, Jewel in 2019 who argued that um, these AAA developers are focusing on telling more realistic stories, having quote unquote real life within game worlds, even if it's still like a fictional one. Um, and that um, these indie games are focusing more on representation or representative personal narratives that indie games are tending to focus on telling real uh quote unquote, real real life stories personal ones um i mix them up here i'm so sorry about that right. um it's the indie games that are focusing on telling the personal real life stories through yeah. representative play while AAA developers are focusing on the fictional worlds um so you know you think of you know games like that dragon cancer for example which one of the most popular indie games that has ever been created literally is just a narrative of a real life story of a real family told through representative, meaningful play. Um, and meaningful play is this term um, coined by Salen and Zimmerman, which basically means that um, within a game, both the game mechanics and narrative are there to be representative mm. while they are there within the game space. It is designed specifically to be understood by the developer and the player that they aren't just things within this contained box of the game. They are meant to be representations of the real world around us. And so they end up being way more impactful, rhetorical and persuasive because of the representative nature. That's where indie games are going with narratives, and that's why they tend to be so much more impactful for their players, is because they are trending with this personal real-life narratives that already a ton of people can relate to because they're real-life stories, um, while also utilizing this tried and true meaningful play style to connect even further with them. While AAA developers are continuing to focus on the tried and true, uh, you know, fictional stories within ones that you can play. Um, you know, there's reasons why narrative games as a genre of play are overwhelmingly created by indie games, you know, games like gone home mm -hmm. and the games that aren't made by massive developers. Um, and all of that gone home so. is one of my favorites by the way that is just at, that was one of the first quote-unquote they use the term walking simulator back i don't know if you remember that but like back in the day when that game first came out and it, it blew my mind that something so simple as like not encountering a single npc or having any combat or anything yet it's still one of my favorite games of all time it's kind of like antithetical to what you would expect a game to be uh this was much more of an experience but it's still technically you know, a video game. Do, do you jive with that at all? Like, are the, do those games sort of speak to you like they do us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, you hear the term walking simulator a lot and it was pretty hated when it first came out. Um, but you know, gone home kind of created this whole subgenre of narrative games with the sole expectation of, you know, Hey, the focus here is not mechanics. The focus here is narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and while like Gone Home was really kind of one of the first major trials of this, um, the game uh, narrative games as a genre has moved towards more like let's try including some form of game mechanics to keep them along. You know, um, Night in the Woods is a really good representation of that. That it is. Very much so, just like a walking simulator, but there are these just little moments of game mechanics that just keep you moving along, keep you remembering that this is a game. That yeah. you, and because those constant reminders, it brings within it all of the mechanics and all of the multitudes of scholarship that I could reference of all of these amazing things that play can do that passive mediums. I want to think about this term that I heard you using around parasocial interaction and what that means in the overall experience, especially of, you know, narrative driven, story driven video games. Can you explain this concept? Yeah. So parasocial interaction is what I've done my uh, most of my work in um, my undergraduate thesis. It's probably what I'll do my master's thesis on. It's probably what I'll do my dissertation on. Nice. Um, so it's a fun time. But basically, yeah. parasocial interaction is this massive theory that came out uh, about 70 years ago and was first looking at television. Horton and Wall were the creators of this theory. And it was first used to actually describe how television viewers are developing an interaction with the people they see on the screen. Um, you know, I like to describe it as they're trying to figure out why all these moms are kind of developing a crush on Walter Cronkite. But um, underneath this huge theory of parasocial interaction, there are two major um, forms that a potential connection with media characters, they can be, you know, real life people or they can be virtual characters. Usually in gaming, this is with virtual characters. Um, and it's parasocial identification and parasocial relationships. Parasocial identification is where you see yourself as one with the media figure on the screen. You see the world through their shoes. And this is particularly powerful because when this happens in the rhetoric world, you interpret the text from the inside. You no longer see yourself as a viewer. You see yourself as a part of the world. Mm. On the other side of parasocial interaction is parasocial relationships, where you maintain the psychological distance from the character or media figure, and you keep your personhood and develop a relationship with them. It's completely one-sided. That person that you're developing this with has no idea you even exist, or they might not even exist altogether. But you develop this relationship as if you know them, as if they're your friends, or even in some cases, you know, a romantic relationship. Um, and my undergraduate thesis kind of created a third prong to this of parasocial camaraderie, where we develop these relationships with multitudes of characters in a team and family dynamic, but I digress on that for now. But within video games, these are particularly powerful um, because parasocial identification occurs very easily in video games because you have agency and interactivity to exert control. And so... Often, um, in games where you are able to create the character, especially when you have control over creating the character, you're pretty much automatically going to identify with them because you aren't going to create a character you don't like. You're going to find some way to connect with them, and then you're interpreting the text of the video game from that character's shoes, literally. Um, and even if the avatar that you are playing as is someone else, identification is still easier in video games because you have control over that avatar, over that character. 
And so while you can uh, develop a parasocial relationship with that character, you can also develop parasocial identification. And what's very interesting that happens pretty uh, some of the time, especially in RPGs, um, is you can then have a double parasocial complex where you are first having a parasocial identification process with the avatar you are playing as. But then that avatar has relationships with other characters in the game. And you're having this full line of just parasocial complexity and phenomenon. And regardless of whether it's identification or relationships or any form of parasocial phenomenon, it has profound effects on users. Parasocial phenomenon is one of the most persuasive tools that was found within television and is even more persuasive within video games. Well, it's part of the reason. Oh, oh no, no. I was, I was actually going to say, especially with video games, with the idea that you can create your own avatar in your own image and the the subconscious piece that kind of comes along with playing through the scope or the eyes of that avatar and interacting in the world as you would as that avatar in some cases. Dude, that, that, that is so profound. Like, I never really thought of that. That's I can see why you dig it so much. Yeah, and it, it's particularly, you know, to just, I really can't, like, put into scope how persuasive this actually is to us. Um, but to try, like, uh, we think about games that, like, pose moral questions. Mm -hmm. And often, like, the video game trope of, like, your companions or the NPCs that are following you or in the area will, like, try to sway you from one side to the other. That entire process, while seeming just like, oh, it's just a one-off line created by the developers to, like, make this seem like it's an option, it's there because you're likely to be interested in it and do it yeah. if the relationship has been developed with them. Um, and it works. And, it's oh. crazy. Like, it's so non-tangible, yet it's so tangible in your mind because of, like, the amount of work that you put into some of those relationships. You don't want to let them down, but it doesn't matter because they're all ones and zeros. It's not going to matter, but it, it does in your head. It's such a crazy and, uh, back and forth. And the most crazy part of this is that this persuasiveness has been documented multiple times to make actual changes to people's real-life behaviors. It isn't wow. just in video game behaviors we can actually literally change the behavior of people's real life uh attitudes beliefs actions through video games you know um my undergraduate thesis was on the outer worlds and without getting too into it basically um i looked at how all of the companions have opinions about the moral question of you know this neo-capitalist society and that all of these characters are representations of um political and economic ideologies mm. by developing relationships with them you get to persuasively test these theories of economics and politics and really dive into what you think is the most powerful and because you're doing this exploring within a video game within a double parasocial complex triple with you know parasocial camaraderie and that team dynamic it can make some really powerful changes to how you view the real world capitalist society that the United States is going through right now, which was heavily influenced, uh, heavily influenced the creation of the outer worlds. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, that's a brilliant, that's another game with some brilliant storytelling uh, that I think captures the way that games like fallout four and fallout 76, like the way that they were trying to tell story, but that like, I don't know, the outer worlds feels 
more like visceral in your in your choices like you you have this this bigger connection to what's going on around you than perhaps some of those other games those big open world games have do, do you would you agree with that or do you see it any differently no, I would agree full-heartedly with that. Um, a lot of people will make comparisons between Fallout New Vegas and the Outer Worlds, you know, for obvious reasons of Obsidian, just, yeah. you know, kind of yeah. giving the middle finger to Bethesda just to <laughs> remind them that they can do it better. But um, but the thing that made the, uh, that's interesting about the comparison between those two is the Outer Worlds is a lot smaller in narrative, questline, all of these things um, compared to Fallout New Vegas. But what makes and even fallout new vegas is small compared to you know fallout 3 and fallout 4 but what made both of those games seem so massive in you know the narrative storytelling game mechanics and persuasive rhetorical power it's all the companion relationships that you develop in the game oh, so true. veronica's quest line alone could be sold to me as a dlc and i would not be <laughs> upset about it you know yeah Oh, that, that, yeah, that, that game is that game is wild. And and actually, for those indie developers, you know, you think about the leg up that a lot of these big AAA title companies have. They have the capital and um, like the power to get their games out there much more broadly. What, what do you see as far as like the industry goes? The difference in the way some of these publishers approach the market, um, and, and how can we better empower? indie game developers to get their the word out about their games that we embrace st stories like i mean i don't i guess obsidian isn't you know they're now owned by microsoft they're not really an indie game developer anymore but like you know the those smaller teams how do we show them a little bit more love i think that first and foremost we need to understand what indie actually means because i think we often think like oh it's just a small development team which yes that's a huge part of it right. um but you know, Garda and um, Grabarskis in 2016 came up with an actual, one of my favorite definitions of what an actual indie game slash indie developer is. And it's a three-pronged definition in which they are independent financially, creatively, and in the publishing sphere. I think we often, you know, have this idea that, uh, especially the financial and the publishing, sometimes we think of that together, often it's separate, um, but and the creative is usually in its own world, but we never think of them as all three. And I think in an effort to support these indie developers, we need to remember to support all three sides of what makes these indie developers indie developers. Right. You know, it's not just loving their work and loving what they're doing for gaming. Um, you know, and I'm hypocritical saying this because I'm totally in that boat. Like, I will just, like, be over here snapping my fingers of, like, yes, keep going. Um, but I don't realize the... The financial and the publishing side of it and so the best you know the best way we can do it ultimately um is you know supporting them morally of course but unfortunately because of the capitalist system that we exist in we have to um our where we spend our money matters and in the idea of like almost a democracy where you spend your money is your vote for not only the games you want to support but where you want the gaming industry to go for so true and, you know, and to put a positive hat on this, um, we are kind of headed in the right direction, you know, with games like uh, with games like Fallout 76 and the others that we've mentioned here. It's pretty clear <laughs> people are not getting too happy with Triple X. Meanwhile, yeah. indie game developers are absolutely soaring right now. Yes. Um, 
you know, and there's there's and even as simple as supporting programs um, and indie, or supporting programs that support indie developers and supporting, you know, indie uh, game awards and things like that to really get the recognition of these indie games and developers so that they can make it and they can give their shot. Um, but if anything, I would say this for sure for all of you listening of how to support these indie developers, play their games with a new open mindset. Yeah. With the turn of the millennia, and especially with at-home console, uh, with at-home consoles becoming mainstream, AAA developers have really taken control over what it means to play a game. And games are so much bigger than that definition. And indie developers are the ones exploring that. And so, among all the other things we said, keep an open mind for what play is, how it might look, how it might feel, how it might play. and move forward with that positive mindset that's so true gosh people have a very set expectation of what video games are and it's much more than perhaps what they were 20 years ago they were you know it's sitting you know where you're sitting in front of your tv shooting little spaceships uh in galaga or you know and playing pong on your atari i mean there's full-fledged experiences now putting you in the shoes of other people and i think that that empathy translates so much um into what we need as a society today anyway uh but also how gaming can kind of bridge that so no this is this has been such a wonderful conversation dominic and and i know that you get this question a lot but i want to broach the question here as we wrap up uh favorite video game of all time oh god okay i know you Uh, know i was going there i know (laughs) um okay i usually ask favorite game to research or favorite game to play but i i will give you a top three combining oh all right hit it of i will preface this by saying these might not be the most popular but for me individually as a player and researcher these are the three most in no particular order influential games to my experience as a human being on earth um franbo undertale and fallout new vegas man yeah I never played Undertale, but I've heard, but I, I I was waiting for you to say that because I know how that game, how much you love that game. I actually have it. Um, I've just never played it, but I heard it's incredible. Uh, so I need to go and, and, and play that. So if just every level of like different research mechanics that I could explore that game through, Undertale just like ten <laughs> out of ten on every single one. <laughs> Very cool. Maybe that'll that'll be next on my on my plate. Um, as we wrap up the conversation, Dominic, first of all, thank you so much for your time. I want to make sure that people know how to reach you or follow you. Uh, do you want to share some of your, your social media stuff or any projects that you're working on? Absolutely. Um, so my main hub of operations is on TikTok, as Alex has said a few times here. Um, Game Studies 101 is the channel that you can find me on come on over we have a fun time um and i've also recently started a discord specifically mostly for game scholars and developers to um collaborate with each other and find spaces to really create a community but all gamers and really anyone is welcome to join in on that conversation um with the same tag of game studies 101 6111 is the numbers after that um and you can find me on there as well um tiktok is also where you can find a majority of my research that i have available if you want to take a look and i am pretty open to talking with literally anyone about gaming research um or any ideas or that you might have for research or ways that i can help you get into game studies because plot twist we need a lot more people in this field so if you are at all interested i'd be happy to help you along the way in any way that i can 
Well, that's super rad. And if you ever want to come on the show and talk about it live on uh, on Twitch when we do our shows, we'd be more than happy to have you. You contributed a lot to the content that we put out here. So thank you so much. Uh, again, our guest has been Dominic Myers. Thanks so much for, for all the profound discussion. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Big thanks again to Dominic for the enlightening conversation. You need to go follow him. If you like this show and if you like our conversations about video games, you'll love the content that he puts out on TikTok. And we want to hear from you. Did you enjoy this sort of content on Joystick and Mouse, interviews, etc.? We want to hear your feedback. You can email joystickandmouse at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought about the show. If you want to contribute anything to the conversation, and we'll give you a shout out. If you want to reach out to any of us individually, whether that be me, Diddy, J-Dimes, all of our information is over at joystickandmouse.com, including when we live stream and everything else. So all of that information is there. Be sure to check the live shows out on Mondays on twitch.tv slash alexalbisu at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. So until next time, be good to yourself, be good to others. Take care. If you like this show, Check out more great content at incastmedianetwork.com. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>